let's jump in. We're going to do our scripture reading, which comes from Matthew 5, starting in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, and for, their, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Almost said, you may be seated. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, I thank you that all around Seattle right now and even people outside of Seattle, as we see on the chat, are right now, although scattered and separated across the city, are right now tuning in and focusing in on what your word has to say. What a strange but beautiful thing that is. And I pray that, that your Holy Spirit would help us now to each hear and to receive what it is that these Beatitudes have to say to us. God, I pray that you would open our hearts to conviction and that we would hear rightly the invitation of Jesus into his divine framework for the good life. I know that we need you every Sunday, but I, I feel it specifically even more today. That through this medium of a camera, of a computer, that your spirit would still unite my words with your power and you would cause us to, to, to respond to this invitation of Jesus. And that we would grow as individuals in this flourishing good life and as a church together here at Icon. Father, we, we trust you. We ask you to move in our hearts by your spirit. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, nine years ago next week is the anniversary of one of the worst couple weeks of my life. So I've, I've shared this story before, but, but nine years ago, because of some rampant irresponsibility in my own personal life at that time, I spent two nights and three days in the Plano Municipal Jail, and it was genuinely one of the worst experiences of my life. Unfortunately, I, I actually hadn't, I had been to jail before, uh, but my dad had actually bailed me out, and he told me that he's only going to do that once, and he actually stuck to his word. But what made this experience so difficult was not just the experience itself, but the consequences of those few days in jail. Right when I got out, I, I, I called Courtney, who, who is my wife now, but we were dating at that time, and she knew what had happened and why, and we set up a time to meet and, and try to debrief everything, but not much debrief actually happened. Instead, we, we, we came to the conversation she came to the conversation knowing exactly what she wanted to say and what she wanted to do. 
So she, uh, she broke up with me at that time, rightfully telling me that she didn't respect me enough to have her future kids raised by me, and so we were over, which was a good, necessary gut punch for me. Ladies, if you ever want to see whether a boy can turn into a man, first off, don't date boys, but if you ever want to see if a boy can turn into a man, say something like that. So I've shared that part of the story before, the, the, the ending of our relationship because of my own irresponsibility. But what I haven't shared is what followed in the couple weeks after that. Tired, emotionally bruised, and personally fed up with myself, I threw myself into the work of, of, of confronting myself and, and confronting everything that I had put off or left unaddressed in my life. And friends, the, even just these couple of weeks, nine years ago, was one of the most fruitful times in my life. So obviously, obviously Courtney and I ended up getting back together, but, but in that time between the breakup and the reunion, I was on a path that was really leading me to grow in leaps and in bounds. And in fact, I remember one specific conversation during that time. So me and, me and Kyle, our, our, our worship director, he just saw, we were out skateboarding uh, during this time. And after sharing with him the ways that I really felt like the Lord was growing me and really was inviting me into depth, I remember him saying this, man, I know it really sucks right now, but sometimes I miss the times of personal suffering because I've never been stagnant or dull while I'm hurting. And of course, me being in the midst of it, I was like, in my mind, okay, yeah, dude, that's easy for you to say. But he was right. Times of suffering are the times. Although we're hurting and sometimes in deep pain, it's those times that it seems like are the most fertile and the most possibility for personal growth. For our, for our personal growth to not just be a, a, a crawl, snail, snail pace, but actually grow in leaps and bounds. We can grow in times of suffering. Personal pain can bring some of the best opportunities for personal growth. But here's the thing. You don't need me to tell you that. You didn't tune into this live stream for, for, and somehow hear that and be like, oh my gosh, that's a whole new revelation. All of us know that. All of us know that pain can lead to growth. You can see any guru or any social media influencer in our culture tell you exactly that. And yet, here's where this section of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount comes in and sets itself apart. We somewhat easily recognize that, can, that pain can be useful in the long term. But Jesus, here in the Beatitudes, does not just speak about the usefulness of negative experiences. Rather, the things that we would identify as negative, or at least unpleasant and against the grain, Jesus actually commends these things as a lifestyle. Jesus doesn't just invite you into momentary time of uh, being uncomfortable, maybe being a little bit of pain, maybe going through a little bit of suffering, and then in that time you can have really great growth. Certainly that happens, but here in the Beatitudes, Jesus commends a certain way of living to us that goes beyond just our timestamps of seasons of suffering. Jesus wants to get us into a lifestyle of what we would, at least at first, identify as uncomfortable. His invitation here 
is not comfortable or even appealing at first, but I hope that we'll see exactly why Jesus invites us in to such an upside-down lifestyle. That's what we're going to cover today. But before we jump in, let me give a quick disclaimer. As will be made obvious throughout this text, if you are going to embrace Jesus' way of life demonstrated in the Beatitudes, you need to be prepared to offer up and to give over your personal definition of happiness. You need to be prepared to offer up and to give over your personal definition of flourishing. The Beatitudes, friends, drill right through our concepts of what it means to be happy or what it means to flourish. But not, 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 not in order to make us unhappy, but in order to actually prepare us to receive Jesus' good word on the good life. So in his book, Pursuit of Happiness, the author Survive Pinkers says this, We can compare the work of the Beatitudes to that of a plow in the fields. Drawn along with determination, it drives the sharp edge of the plowshare into the earth and carves out, as the poet says, a deep wound, a broad furrow. In the same way, the word of the Beatitudes penetrates us with the power of the Holy Spirit in order to break up our interior soil. It cuts through us with the sharp edge of trials and struggles it provokes. It overturns our ideas and projects, reverses the obvious, thwarts our desires, and bewilders us, leaving us poor and naked before God. All this in order to prepare a place within us for the seed of new life. Embracing Jesus' way of life, expounded in these Beatitudes, and you will find a deep wound, a broad furrow being cut through your personal ideas of happiness. You will find your personal desires being thwarted. But friends, all of this, that deep wound, that broad furrow done, cut through in order to prepare a place where the seed of a new life can take root and begin to flourish. In other words, What I'm trying to get across, what I'm trying to warn you here, is that the Beatitudes cannot be read casually. They will either draw through and pierce through your idea of happiness and of the good life, or you're just going to read them and, and leave them alone. They either cut through or they do nothing at all because you reject them. Be prepared for that, friend. Let your heart be offered to God in order to let him drive through some of what you might think. So that's my disclaimer. That's my loving warning. Let's, let's jump in. Now, to start off, I, I want to unpack and address the, the, the consistent word in this text, which is this, blessed. Shows up all throughout the text, and we, we got to unpack that a little bit. So to do that, let me, let me talk about this. There's, there's a field of study called cognitive linguistics, and basically what this is, is it, it's a study or a field in which people study how certain words bring up certain ideas or certain images in our brain based off of where, we at, where, where we're at in history, where our culture is, how we have been raised. It, it studies how we hear certain words and bring up specific ideas or images based off how we've been shaped to think. And, and these ideas 
or these images that come up with words. It differs across time and culture. So let's try this out. I'm going to say a word, and I want you to think of the first, I want you to, to hold on to the first image that comes into your mind. House. Okay? Probably got an image in your mind. Now, I can probably guess what came up in your mind. An image of where you live, where you probably are right now, with a roof, with bedrooms, a TV, a dining room. But what I bet didn't come into your mind was the thought of the lineage of your ancestors that could be described as the house of blank. I would bet that what didn't come into your mind was the place where you lay your deceased loved ones. Though all throughout history and even in places in the world today, that's exactly the image and the idea that would come up with that word. Or even I bet you didn't come up with the idea or the image of an igloo. Though there are certainly places where that would come up in the mind. Words have certain meanings in specific cultures and that affects how we hear them. And the same is true for this word, blessed. Many of us associate it with blessing, and it meaning we hear that as God's active favor at work in our lives. But that's not what this word actually means, and nor is it what the original hearers of Jesus' sermon would have heard. The Greek word here is a word called makarios, and the closest English word that gets across the same idea is one that I've been using all throughout this sermon and even in the last sermon last week, flourishing. Jesus isn't here referencing the active blessing of God, the, the, the do this and you will get this kind of idea. Rather, he is identifying for us what flourishing is. He's identifying for us what the flourishing life is, not do this and then you're going to get this, but rather what flourishing already looks like. And last week I said that Jesus, throughout the Sermon on the Mount, would be picking up and using much of the words or tools that the ancient Greek philosophers like Plato or Socrates used. And this is the first instance of that, friend. Jesus here is creating or saying what's called macarisms. So macarisms, based off the word makarios, are a philosopher's first invitation into the good, meaningful, flourishing life. Macarisms, as we see in ancient Greek philosophers and then even here in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, they commend to us a certain lifestyle that will trend toward living a good, meaningful, and flourishing life. And although there is often a reward or a result tied to a macarism, like we see here in Jesus' Beatitudes, they are not trying to get you to do something in order for you to just get something. Rather, again, they are trying to identify for you what right now flourishing looks like. And the reward or the result that's tied to it is often just used as a proof that the one who is actually embracing this macarism is indeed currently flourishing. That's what Jesus is doing here. It's important to see that. Jesus here is opening his sermon with macarisms, an invitation into flourishing in the same way that those ancient philosophers had. Now, with that out of the way, having some clarity around what, flir- what blessed actually means, the, the, the flourishing life, what does Jesus actually invite us into? 
So let's look at the specifics of the Beatitudes, and then toward the end, we will explore how they actually lead us into flourishing. So we're actually going to run through the Beatitudes pretty quickly and spend most of our time unpacking how and why that can be described as flourishing, because it's mostly obvious what Jesus is saying. We, we can see that, but what's not so obvious is that what he's saying is actually the flourishing life. So let's look, take a look at the Beatitudes. You can, you can break these Beatitudes out into, into three main chunks. Beatitudes of conditions, Beatitudes of virtues, and Beatitudes of action. So let's look at those and see what each one is saying. First, the Beatitudes of certain conditions. Look at the text with me, starting in verse, verse two. And he opened his mouth and Jesus taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. These first four macarisms or beatitudes are talking about certain conditions or states that's being commended to us. And each one of them, if you notice, have a theme in common, which is this, lowliness. Jesus here in these first four Beatitudes is trying to commend to you the lowly life as the life that's flourishing. So first, this this lowliness takes the form of what Jesus calls poverty of spirit. That blessed are those who are poor in spirit. What this means is those who, who recognize in themselves a sense of personal spiritual bankruptcy. They're not deluded in terms of their own spiritual power. They're not high or rich in spirit because they think they can do everything, but actually people who recognize their own sense of spiritual poverty and are therefore lowly because of it. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This is a a lowliness, a a condition of enduring sadness at the state of our world and even our personal lives. A visceral, emotional condition where we recognize just how unjust our world is and how unjust our personal lives have become. They mourn. They're They're not deluded about the state of the world, but they're tuned in with its pain. Blessed are the meek a lowliness that that doesn't grab for position or jockey for influence, but instead considers others more highly than themselves. And then finally, blessed are those who hunger and thirst. A lowliness that, that looks at the condition of our world, that looks at our own personal lives and notices the lack of righteousness and goodness. And... In that noticing of that lack does not devolve into cynicism, but rather sees that absence of righteousness and allows themselves to be expectantly hungry for it to show up in our world and in our personal lives again. Blessed. Blessed are those who let themselves feel the pain of hungering for a world made right. Those are the Beatitudes of Conditions. Then Jesus breaks it out into beatitudes of virtues. Blessed are the merciful. 
This is a, a, a virtue, someone who has mercy in their heart, that they don't see the sins of other people as, as the things that should disqualify others from relationship, but rather, honestly, because they have a sense of poverty of spirit, recognize their own need, and because of that, give mercy freely. Blessed are the pure in heart. The pure in heart are not, are not muddied by the distractions of this world, but rather have a singular focus on what they value. We'll see this in a couple weeks, that this isn't just talking about the sexual purity of our minds or of our hearts. It's talking about the, the direction of our hearts being singularly focused on what they value. They don't have a heart that's splintered in affections, but rather they are wholeheartedly set in their devotion to God. And then blessed, this final virtue, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who see tension, conflict, and try, work, don't just wish for it, but work for reconciliation. What a, what a dangerous thing to actually do. <laughs> to actually come into relationships or between parties that are conflicting and actually be the one who wants to make peace. Finally, Jesus's Beatitudes of Actions. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Those men and women who actually work out and live out what God calls righteous and because of that are actually persecuted. Because of that are unwelcome, are pushed away, and are even talked down to because they treasure and live out the righteousness that God calls righteous. And then persecuted, reviled, blessed are those who, uh, who are reviled because they associate themselves with the name of Jesus. Those people who don't keep their faith as a personal thing just to kind of hold quietly in their heart, but people who publicly in their real life acknowledge their allegiance to Jesus. And because of that, are reviled. Now, that's a, that's a brief overview of what these Beatitudes actually say. I wish we could actually take more time and do a deep dive on each one of those, but it would require a sermon of its own, and I've got a sermon schedule to keep, so we can't do that. It's clarity on what they actually say, but, but the question for many of us, we can, we can run through that and see, okay, yeah, it seems like it's clear what Jesus is actually inviting us into, to, to mourn, to have a poverty of spirit, to be lowly, to have some virtues of mercy, and to associate ourselves with Jesus. But that still doesn't answer the question of how in the world Jesus can call this blessed. That still, even if we have clarity on what Jesus is actually saying, that still doesn't give us clarity as to why he would call this the flourishing life. How in the world can Jesus identify these things with flourishing? Is Jesus, and it's been interpreted this way, is Jesus just being intentionally provocative here? Just kind of flipping our views upside down because he's being provocative there on that mountain? Or is he saying something that's actually true? Is he saying something that's actually true? How could these surprising conditions, virtues, and actions actually be called the good life? Let's explore that. Two ways that I think these surprising beatitudes actually are identifying or help us identify 
the good, flourishing life. First, these Beatitudes invite us into flourishing because they disrupt our cheap, low-ball view of the good life. They disrupt what we think happiness actually looks like. Like I, like I shared last week, we, we often describe happiness as, as nothing more than positive emotional mathematics. We just want to feel good. We think that the good life is defined by having a, a general net positive on your good experiences over your bad experiences. But that is such a cheap view of happiness or the good life. That is so low and so vulnerable of a view of what the good life actually is. Instead, we need something that roots us down into meaning, down into purpose. The happy, flourishing, good life is one that is deeper than just our positive experiences, which is exactly, friends, what these Beatitudes do. These Beatitudes reach down into who we are in our conditions, who we are in our virtues, and what we do in our actions, and directs us there. In other words, they provide a reliable framework upon which to build a purposeful, meaningful life. They don't commend the cheap view of happiness that simply avoids annoyance or is allergic to inconvenience. Rather, they address us who we are at our core. And if we follow that, it can lead us into meaning. It disrupts, friends, our cheap, low view of what the good life is. And second, why Jesus can call these, these conditions, these virtues, these actions as flourishing. And this, one's, this one is probably even more important. The reason why is because these beatitudes invite us into the good flourishing life because they match up with where the world is going. In other words, they are an attempt to live into reality. They match up with where the world is going. When it comes to creating a flourishing life, these beatitudes work because they match up exactly with where God is taking the world. Did you notice how the result or the reward for nearly all of these beatitudes is future-oriented? What Jesus is trying to do here is open up for us where God is taking the story of this world and getting us to align our lives with the truth of that. Jesus is trying to open up where God is bringing this world into comfort, into inheriting the earth, into righteousness, into mercy, into seeing God, into being called the sons and daughters of God, where God is taking things and then helping you to see exactly what conditions, virtues, and actions match up with that reality. These Beatitudes are the flourishing life because they are tuned into 
reality. To not, to not be poor in spirit is to live in a delusion. To not be meek is to live into a delusion. It doesn't tell the truth about who you are. To not associate yourself with Jesus and therefore be persecuted would be to live into a delusion about who you've been made to be in Jesus Christ. Jesus here is inviting you in to the real life. Living virtues, conditions, and actions that actually match up with it. They resist the short-sighted tendency of getting what's ours. Getting what's ours only works if the story of the world is that one day everything is going to be destroyed by some massive solar flare. So therefore, time is running out. With a story like that, with a worldview like that, of course, to flourishing life would be consumption and selfishness, opposite of these beatitudes. But if the world is headed toward God's kingdom, where righteousness, peace, and comfort will reign, then the good life, the life that is flourishing, is embracing what Jesus lays out here as the conditions embodying the virtues and enacting the actions that match up with reality. That's why Jesus can say, here's the way into the good life. That's where he's inviting you into. He's inviting you, friend, out of a delusion to match your life up with what is God's true story of the world and where he's taking things. Now, let me land the plane. A deep wound, a broad furrow. These beatitudes extend an invitation to you today. Let go of your cheap, momentary view of happiness and flourishing. That's the invitation today. You want a call to action? Let go of your cheap view of happiness. Let go of it. I mean, has COVID not shown you yet that short-term solutions for happiness are not, are not the wisest thing to give your long-term flourishing life toward? Having a short-term view of happiness that really just works itself out through selfishness, consumption, and self-actualization that's not the way to the good life because one, like I've already said, it doesn't actually match up with where God is taking the world, but also just practically, it doesn't work. The invitation is to let go of that, drop the short-sighted view, and instead take up what Jesus identifies as the true story of the world and follow the way that he lays out here. I've already said this, but there's no flourishing living in a delusion. Delusions of self-aggrandizement. Delusions of self-actualization. Flourishing only happens when our conditions, virtues, and actions, in other words, our lifestyles, match up with what is actually true in God's good story. My guess, because I know human beings relatively well, and more so because I trust what the Spirit is doing, one of these 
Beatitudes have cut your heart, have disrupted your view of happiness. What are you going to do with that, friend? Are you going to numb that pain through continued consumption and selfishness? Are you going to believe the lie of our culture that the good life is simply in you doing you? Or will you hear Jesus? Will you see that that furrow, that that deep wound is done in order for Jesus to plant the seed of the good life into your heart? He wants to do that today, friend. Would you repent? Would you drop that short-sighted view and take up Jesus on his good life? But no doubt, we will not live up to this path. None of us. None of us have a complete poverty of spirit. None of us, even if we got one of them right, miss it on all the other eight. None of us can walk this path. And so therefore, Josh, what's even our hope for flourishing? If I can't do it on all these, what's my hope for for flourishing? If I keep going off this path, how can I continue to move forward? In steps the gospel of grace. That of course you can stay on that path. Of course you can keep going even when you go off it and on it again because it's not about your faithfulness that gets you through the journey. It's about the fact that Jesus, in fact, embodied all of these things for our salvation. He had a poverty of spirit. He had a meekness. He mourned for the condition of the world. He had a hunger and thirst for righteousness. He was a peacemaker. He made peace between us and God. He's done all these things perfectly and has therefore blazed this trail of grace for you to walk down, for you to continue to, yeah, you fall off of it, you get back up again. You you, you seek to embody these things. Not because it's earning for you some sense of God's favor, but because Jesus has already completed the path and paved it with grace. Let's keep our eyes focused on that truth, our hearts obsessed with that reality as we seek to embody the flourishing life that Jesus here lays out. Let's pray. Father, thank you that your son is our teacher but more so above that, before that, and in all of that. Your son is our savior. Here he identifies with each one of these macroisms. Jesus truly was the one who embodied the flourishing life, who in the end gave up that flourishing for our own sake. God, would you allow the grace of that to wash over us today, where any sense of conviction, where any wound of disruption that these beatitudes create in us, would you allow that to not fester out of shame or even out of self-determination, but allow it to be the place in which the seed of grace can come into our hearts and create spiritual vitality to keep us moving down this path. God, make us into a people who are flourishing in what you call flourishing, resisting the narrative of our own personal selfishness and of the culture of you do you. Help us to resist that 
Help us to hear your way is better and to actually practice it in our real lives. By the power of your spirit, energized by your grace, do that in us. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. This teaching was recorded as part of our current sermon series at Icon Church. During our weekly gatherings, we move from the teaching to a time of response. While we recognize it may be hard to capture that as you listen online, we encourage you to take a moment to reflect on and respond to what the Spirit might be telling you in response to what you've heard. For more resources and to find out how you can join with us on Gathering on Sundays, visit iconchurch.org. And as we say each week, Christ is all and we are His.